Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. I am your host, Lori Jimenez. I created this platform with a sole mission, and that is to inspire people of all backgrounds to create the change they wish to see in their lives and in the world by sharing the examples of those who are. As a listener, you will hear the stories of ordinary men and women with extraordinary stories of overcoming adversities in order to experience the life they dream of. All of these individuals share a common interest. They desire a change for the better, and they are in a relentless pursuit to create that for themselves. If you're looking for inspiration to overcome challenges in your own life, to create a life that you desire to have, then you have come to the right place. You see, the truth is, people everywhere are fighting for what they believe in, and together, with relentless action and mental strength, I have no doubt that we can fulfill that dream. Welcome back to Relentless Minds. This is your host, Lori Jimenez. For today's episode, I chat with Nancy Herz, a human rights activist and the co-author of the book Shameless, which is a collection of stories from girls who have personally experienced negative social control. Through her activism, Nancy strives to tackle the restrictive roles set for youth in an effort to inspire them to take control of their lives and create for themselves their own identity, values, and dreams. Nancy was personally affected by negative social control and a shame-honor culture growing up, which made her struggle with her identity, and she experienced guilt and shame and never felt good enough in the eyes of her community. In this episode, Nancy opens up about her journey to discover her true identity and her struggles with shame as she went against the expectations set before her by society, her family, and community. Hi, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Norway to share your story and life work on Relentless Minds today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be talking to you. So, Nancy, you're an advocate for human rights and for women and girls to be free to choose a life that they desire without the oppression caused by social control, racism, and the shame honor culture seen in minority and religious communities. Can you start by sharing when you noticed a major problem in constrictive gender roles and social norms and how it affected you personally? Yes, I think that I've always known that there's something wrong when I've been told that I should act differently just because I'm a girl. But the first time that I was able to put words to that feeling was in 2016 when I wrote an op-ed in one of Norway's biggest newspapers called we are the shameless arab woman and our time starts now and for me that was a really big step because i had this feeling that something was wrong i knew that there was some kind of oppression i knew that girls were treated differently from boys but i just didn't have the words or the language to express that and finally being able to put words to that feeling actually matters so much to me because Only by being able to describe the oppression, by being able to describe this injustice, I could talk about it and then I could fight against it. Because the problem with these issues is that you're often told that you're just making this up, it's all Mm. in your head, we're treating you well, why are you asking for so Mm. much? Uh, Aren't we treating you in a good way? Haven't we given you a house and a life? And... uh, everything that you need to live an okay life. And I often heard that from my parents, but I also heard that a lot from other people in my parents' community that, oh, you have all the freedom you need. Uh, But at the same time, I knew that I didn't. And being able to call this negative social control 
mattered so much to me because I was finally able to fight against it and define it and say that it's not me that there's something wrong with it's these structures that are trying to oppress us and tell us that we're not good enough. And you started noticing this early on in your life. And that's incredible. When it comes to your ethnic background, what is your ethnic background? And what were these oppressive influences that you started to identify when you were growing up? Uh, I have Lebanese parents and I come from a Muslim family, but I don't think that this is a Muslim issue. I think that people, regardless of their religious background or where their parents are from, can relate to these issues. I think it's about living in a society where the community matters more than the individual. Mm -hmm. And that's where you find these kind of oppressive, negative social control. For me, it was mainly about the small things. It was about the way I could hear that as a girl, I should act differently, uh, that I shouldn't sit like that, I shouldn't Mm -hmm. smile too much, uh, I shouldn't um, be too loud. Uh, And it was also about this idea that as a girl, my job or my role was to get married and I should live a certain life and be the way that other people wanted me to be. And at the beginning, I tried to fit into these small boxes. I tried to be the way that my parents wanted me to be or how I imagined that they wanted me to be. And at the same time, I tried to fit into uh, the... Norwegian society so it was a really difficult role to play to try to be both the perfect Arab girl and also someone who could fit into the Norwegian society and I realized as I grew up and as I started talking about these issues that I didn't feel like neither of those roles were really me and I also feel like even though we're talking about really small things they accumulate become very big things and it becomes much harder for a young girl or a young guy to be able to live their lives the way they want and to be who they want to be when they're constantly told that they should change they should live their lives in a different way and that's why I needed to talk about these issues I think it would have been easier if I just fought this battle in my own life and then everything was okay and if I didn't talk too much about it because I think the biggest issue for my parents is that I'm so vocal about it Mm. and it's given them trouble because uh, people from uh, Lebanon tell them that they haven't raised a good enough daughter and people in their Arab community in Norway tell them that uh, they should uh, um, be better parents And I'm really fortunate because as I've been fighting this oppression, as I've been fighting against these mechanisms, my parents have come to understand me better. And even though we haven't agreed on everything, and even though I know that parts of the way I live my life hurts them, uh, they still choose to have a relationship with me. And our relationship actually grew better after I started being honest with them. At, at least after the initial shock. <laughs> uh, if I could get, recommend something to people, it would be that they don't go out in the public and talk about these issues before they talk about them at home because my parents read about my revolution in the newspaper. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't really talk about it with them. Wow. Uh, so don't do that. <laughs> uh, 
How do your parents treat? I can I can relate. I can relate to that. Yeah. Because you don't feel you don't feel like they're going to understand. And you don't think they're you're gonna you think that they're going to just try to shut you down and convince you otherwise. And then, you know, if you decided to still go forward and publicly announce your beliefs, at that point you're just you feel like you're being disobedient, you're being a bad child, you're you know, mm. you're just backlashing on them. So it, it's a lot more difficult. But yes, I completely understand that that side of things that you should, you know, talk to them first because honestly, they do come around. Like a lot of times, they will come around, and and yeah, you just really want the best from, for you a lot of times. An interesting thing I wanted to actually mention was that you were your family then they were experiencing backlash and also oppression from their community, which was an yeah. interesting part. So can you speak on, on that and what they were experiencing there? Yeah, so I know that my parents have faced uh, some backlash because I went out in the public and started speaking about living the way you want and breaking free from their social control. And as I said, I talked mainly about the minor issues because even if they're, for many people, they're just details, but for me, there was something that accumulated to becoming an oppression in my whole life. If all the small things are not good for you or not allowed, or if your parents are constantly trying to tell you to do this instead of that, when you don't feel like that's you, uh, you feel like you're not allowed to be yourself and that can be quite hurtful. So even though I was talking about the small stuff, I think that they are important as well. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge that even though I am fortunate and my parents ended up supporting me, I know that there are a lot of young people out there who don't have the same experience, who have to break from their family, who end up uh, having to live on a secret address in fear of their family. So this is very problematic for many people. And I'm really proud of my parents for coming around after a few years and that we're being able to have a relationship now. I know my parents have lost a lot of friends because they've been supporting me, because they've been defending me, they've defended my choices. And I know that they've also been told that they're bad parents, uh, they've been told that they should have raised me better. And I know that it's hurtful for them, but at the same time, I've been speaking to them and they say something that I think a lot of parents should uh, think about, and it's that. Okay, so what are our options? Uh, our option is to lose touch with you and you live on the other side of the country and we could end up not, not talking like ever. Uh, or as my dad said, so what do you want me to do? Do you want me to kill you? <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, and unfortunately, that's the sad reality for many women uh, around the world who actually risk losing their lives because mm -hmm. they do just half of what I do or even just a small part mm -hmm. of what I've done for my personal freedom. And that's why I think it's my responsibility as someone who's able to, to be vocal about this and maybe inspire some change. And for me, this has never been about telling people how to live their lives or telling people that they should make the same choices as I have. It's always been about telling people that they should be able to make the choices that they want to make. Mm -hmm. and they should be able to live their lives the way they want and i think it's crucial and even though i didn't talk about this 
issue in particular before I was 18 years old, I did fight for human rights earlier. I was very vocal about human rights abuses all over the world. I was engaged in amnesty. Uh, I've always been an activist mm-hmm. and I think it's really important that we care about what's happening in the world. But in 2016, it was the first time that I talked about human rights as something that concerned my life personally. And it was something that a lot of people related to. So you connected human rights violations, you know, to a degree to not being able to live your own life because of the social controls that were placed upon you. You know, you've talked on a lot of important things and one of those being the the other side of the the struggle when it comes to individuals because i went through that as well of like you know trying to choose the life that made me happy but a lot of times it it's easy to forget the struggles that those people that have to now accept the change that you want the struggles that they have to experience because they're dealing with the backlash from from their friends from other family members and your family was able to turn around, but during the time that there was a conflict, right, between what you wanted and what they wanted, a lot of times people don't want to go that route because of this conflict, because of this discomfort, you're feeling like you're a bad child, there's guilt, there's, sh- there's shame. How were you able to move past that or control that within yourself to say, I need this because this is what makes me happy? That's a really good question. Uh, I think that the conflict and the period of time when you're in conflict with the people you love the most is very difficult. And uh, I've realized that it's been really hard for my parents as well, especially after I started writing my new book. Uh, Currently, I'm writing a book about my mother and our relationship and her life. especially about how the way I am living my life and the way I started becoming more and more vocal about living my life in a way that she doesn't approve of has affected her. So I've been doing this project and talking to her and asking her questions. And I realized that many of the choices that I've made are hurting her, especially, but also my father. And For me, it was a really tough period because we didn't talk for many months uh, when I started talking about these issues. And a lot of this was because of misunderstanding, because she didn't understand what I was really saying, because she thought that this was my fight against religion or this was my fight against her culture and everyone to make the same choices as I have. I've also been vocal about being an atheist, so that wasn't too easy for them. Uh, But I think that what made this so important for me is that as I started being more and more honest about who I am and about my life, I felt the shame letting go. And the feeling of shame is so heavy and so hard to carry that I had to do this for me and I had to do this in order to be able to live with myself. I think that Shame is one of the most difficult feelings that we have because when we feel shame, we're often ironically so ashamed of feeling that shame that we don't want to talk about it. We don't want anyone to know that we're feeling it. 
And a lot of people don't even call it shame. We sometimes talk about being embarrassed or humiliated, but we never talk about being ashamed. We rarely talk about this bad gut feeling where we know that something is wrong, where we know that we don't feel like we're good enough. So when I was speaking about the feeling of shame, I realized that the only way of getting rid of it was speaking about it and being loud about it and uh, talking about all these issues that were never about me. It was never my fault. And I think that this applies to a lot of the experiences that we have as women, not only negative social control, but also when we're being harassed in the workplace, mm. also if we experience sexual harassment, if we experience sexual violence, if we experience someone telling us that we're not good enough. The only way of getting rid of that feeling is by talking about it and by hearing that other people can relate and that they know what this is about. That was maybe the best part of this, that I finally realized that I wasn't alone. And it's probably mm -hmm. a really selfish thought, but I always thought that I'm the only one in the world who knows, who knows how it's like. <laughs> and then when I realized that I wasn't, uh, it made everything so much easier and it mm -hmm. made it worth it. Yeah. And another thing that makes it worth it is so that a lot of young guys and girls, they sent me messages, they said that I'm speaking about the things that they're experiencing. And that's also a really powerful thing to be able to support other people and maybe inspire other people mm -hmm. to change their own lives. So it's interesting because you started off by trying to discover yourself. And you were putting this out there because of your own pain and your own anguish. And then as you started to connect with other individuals because they were feeling the same thing. And I know that you created the movement Shameless, uh, which over a period of time, it looks like you collected the stories of girls who had experienced a negative social control. And what initially then inspired you to create this movement? Was it all of the, all of the messages that you were receiving and you were seeing that people out there were experiencing the same thing? Um, so what was it that inspired you to create, to create that movement and to reach out to the community to hear their personal stories and struggles? It wasn't intentionally. <laughs> I, I wrote this op-ed in 2016 because I needed to address this issue and it was a very personal issue for me and then a lot of people related to it and they started writing back and a lot of people started writing their own op-eds and some people agreed and others disagreed hmm. which was okay and I think that it wasn't something that I did on purpose uh, we never created a movement her definition because we just talked about these issues and then a lot of people followed mm -hmm. and I don't think that this is something new I know that in Norway women of color have been speaking about this for the last 20 years but what we did is that we started talking about it with new words such as shameless that we started addressing it with an anti-racist and feminist point of view instead of just talking about our anguish a lot of times People talk about their personal experiences and their pain and the issues that they've faced. And it's kind of stopped there, even though that's really important. I think that it's more important to move this forward, to create policies, to exactly. push on decision makers and not use the pain and anguish in every speech that you make, but use the hope, use the inspiration, use the fact that we are a lot of people talking about this as mm -hmm. a motivation 
because that's what makes it possible to push beyond just that pain and those initial emotions. So Shameless uh, was never meant to be an organization or a movement. It's just a lot of people who relate to this. And then Which I think, I think it's kind years, of a movement in itself, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that anyone who wants to call themselves Shameless and who associates with these struggles and who feel like yeah, we're talking not on their behalf, but that we're talking about something that concerns them uh, is shameless. Uh, but for us, I think the most uh, definite point was when we wrote the book Shameless in 2017, and that's when we actually started collecting these stories. And we collected stories from eight, eight different girls, and we wrote them into short stories because we didn't want anyone to be able to identify these women. Mm. We also had a lot of discussions about different experiences such as not being allowed to join swimming class at school because we had to wear longer clothes and that was really difficult or not being allowed to have a boyfriend or mental health or sex ed and we started talking about all these issues and we recorded them and those conversations also became part of the book between me and my two co-authors and I think that the book was the most important step of our journey because we made something that was more permanent and that other people could read and maybe be inspired by. Mm -hmm. And also a book that could provoke some people. But what fascinated me the most is that the book is now three years old. It's been sold to Sweden, to Germany, uh, to Azerbaijan, and to northern macedonia uh, at the time and Which, during the last three years i didn't know that my mom had read it oh. and, she, and uh, she actually told me that it was a really important resource for parents who wanted to understand oh. their kids and it made my heart oh oh my god <laughs> that's incredible so you have the support of your parents now and the yeah. relationship is better and that's absolutely yeah. incredible you've been living in norway now your whole life yeah, I, I was born in Beirut, but I've uh, lived almost my whole life in Norway. In Norway. So there was that struggle with identity of either conforming to the Nor Norwegian culture or the Lebanese culture from your parents. And I think I'd like to talk a little bit about that as well when it comes to the pressures of like society and the pressures of, uh, well, mostly just right now, the pressures of society when it comes to conforming. What were the challenges that you've experienced or that you see that is apparent when it comes to social control in the major society when presented to like minority communities? And how does that serve to like negatively oppress individuals? Yeah, I think it's a very important question. And that's a point of view that doesn't always make it to the media because it's so much more sexy to talk about how girls with a minority background are oppressed by their parents and how the minority communities are so bad and uh, even in Norway some politicians have tried to hijack our stories in order to say stuff like oh look at the shameless girls they're saying how bad it is to be a girl with a minority background that's why we should stop immigration oh like, what the hell <laughs> that's not the point <laughs> what do you mean by that yeah and mm -hmm. then they're hijacking our lives and our stories in order to back up their 
their own interests or their racism yeah and their own interests and we can't agree to that uh, and that's why i've been fighting both sides i've been fighting both the negative social control but also uh, racism and uh, discrimination in the major society and i think it's so important to be able to have both points of views and not let anyone tell you that the world is black and white and it's, you have to choose this or that but for me this wasn't only about feeling controlled in my own life by my own parents or feeling controlled when uh, I was growing up feeling like I wasn't a good enough Lebanese girl or Arab girl or Muslim girl this is also about how when I grew up when I started school I always knew that I was different from the other kids and I think it's just a thing that you know as a child that oh, you look different or your skin is darker or your hair looks different or uh, your parents speak another language to you at school and that's so embarrassing and I'm embarrassed by that now. I'm embarrassed by the fact that I was embarrassed by, of my parents because they were doing their best and they were just trying to helped me through uh, school and Norwegian society but it's also about the fact that when already in first grade I knew that I was different and I experienced racism and I experienced other children saying really mean stuff uh, and I know that it's worse in the U.S. and I know that I'm a relatively pale Arab so mm -hmm. I have a passing privilege which we should acknowledge I know that a lot of people experience a lot more racism than I do, but still, it was bad. Uh, and then I tried as good as I could to fit in in my community as I was growing up. I tried to be Norwegian enough, uh, but then in junior high, I decided to rebel against this, and I decided that, okay, you're telling me that I'm not Norwegian enough. I'll show you what it means to not be Norwegian enough. So I became super religious for a few oh. years. Huh. Yeah, that was my rebellion. I became super religious and uh, I wanted to wear the hijab, but my parents wouldn't let me because they thought that I would change my mind. And mm. in their opinion, it was worse to start wearing it and then take it off than to not start wearing it at all. Mm. And they were also really afraid of the racism that I would experience. This was at the time of the terror attack in Norway in 2011, and it made a really big impact on the Norwegian society. And I remember I was 15 years old at the time, and I remember that my initial thoughts were, oh my God, I hope that he's not an Arab. And it turned out to be a Norwegian white male who was a terrorist, and it was just awful. Uh, the whole situation but at the same time I know that so many people were so relieved that he wasn't a Muslim and that he wasn't an Arab. I remember that a lot of people were really afraid uh, and I know people who were walking home from work that day before it was known that uh, this guy was Norwegian and they were so afraid. They were so afraid of how people would look at them and how it would be to be a minority in Norway after this. And my parents were really worried, and that's why they wouldn't let me uh, do something more to show that I'm different, and they, they wouldn't let me wear the hijab. Uh, but I was really religious. That was my rebellion. And then after a while, I figured out that this wasn't really working for me either. And I started engaging in amnesty, and I found another way of rebelling, another way of using my anger and my energy and my engagement in a positive way rather than 
either being too religious or too Norwegian or too this or too that. I realized that I could be all these things at once and I could also use my voice in a positive way. Mm -hmm. That was in 2011 for the first time. And it was a really strong experience for me because I didn't know before that that my voice could matter to Mm -hmm. anyone. And so with these struggles that you're experiencing in trying to figure out if you're going to conform to Norwegian or to your parents' culture, what did you end up deciding was the right fit for you? I ended up deciding that neither was the right fit for me, to be honest. And that was because after this super religious period and after the period of being bullied and feeling like I'm not Norwegian enough, I started high school and I started the International Baccalaureate. And what happened is that all the outcasts from earlier, like all the people who didn't fit in in junior high, we found each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> we became friends. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. so I have six uh, girlfriends uh, who were in my gang. And I think that all of us didn't feel at home at all in uh, junior high. And we have a lot of different backgrounds, uh, different religious backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, and we became this group of people who actually made the high school livable for each Mm -hmm. other. So high school was actually a really good time in my life. I didn't peak in high school, but it was a good time in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And having these really good influences and seeing how I could just be me with this group of friends, it made such a big difference, and it gave me the space to consider who I wanted to be and to try to figure out how I wanted to live my life and they were so supportive and it it was yeah it was probably the best time of my life that's so great that Um, you that you found that because you basically found like your own community you know you basically created your own community with your friends there and everybody there that that you know was also in a search to figure out what they where they belonged and so you guys decided to belong together yeah And it also gave me the self-confidence to be able to go out from high school, move to each other part of the country, and still have the self-confidence to be who I want to be and not try to fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that was so important. And they also gave me the self-confidence to be engaged, to start writing about the issues that I cared about, even though I wrote this op-ed about Shameless in 2016, I had been writing in my local newspaper for three years before that. So I wrote a lot about issues that concerned me and my friends were so supportive. And when I suddenly got a voice in public and a lot of people started reading what I wrote, it was still this group of friends, this small community that mattered so much and that made it possible. And I think that the reason why I'm telling you this is because you don't need a lot of people supporting you. You don't need everyone cheering on you. You don't need mm. your parents to understand mm. how you want to live your life. You just need those two or three or five people tell you that you're good enough regardless yeah. of how you live your life and that what you're feeling and what you're doing is true and that you deserve to be acknowledged and that you deserve to be heard. Wow, those words, everything just hit me hard. Because, you know, and I have to say this, that is something I've identified as unconditional love, unconditional love and unconditional support. And it was something that 
I had to discover myself and you're right with friends, people that are, that aren't even blood relatives and they were there even more than blood relatives, you know, and, and it's a powerful opportunity for people to take advantage of in their own lives, because you'll find that if you search for it, if you look for it, if you accept people who want to be there for you. And I'm so happy that you found that. I'm so happy that you found that it's still like, you know, high school years, those are some very important years where you're still f- discovering yourself. You're still f- trying to see where you're going to be moving forward. And where are you now with those relationships with those girls? <laughs> We're still friends. So we have a Facebook group. Uh, we actually made a pact in 2013 when we met and we became friends we made a pact and uh, we were just all these underdogs creating the group so we actually have a fellowship because we were so afraid of becoming a club because our mothers would have these uh, knitting clubs and sewing clubs and we didn't want to become a club so we created a fellowship and I actually have this big contract on my wall still. Oh. And of course, people, <laughs> of course people grow up and you might grow apart and we don't meet that often anymore because mm-hmm. we live in totally different parts of the country. Uh, but no matter what, it's those people that gave me the self-confidence, that gave me just what I needed to be able to say that I don't want to... I don't want to let other people define my life. And especially in these times when a lot of people are always telling you that the world is black and white and that you should adhere to this or that, Mm. and that uh, you should be like this or you should be like that. And uh, if you have this political view, then you're like this and they're putting you in this box. And if you have Mm -hmm. that political view, you're like that. Very close-minded. Yeah, and there's so many people who are trying to define us and there's so many people who are trying to tell us that it's either or and I think that young people today can be both or the end they can be everything they want to be and I don't think that it's something to be inspired by to just say that oh, everything is like this I don't think that uh, finding the final answer or the solution is something that we should be proud of because then we're not evolving you're not I evolving that, yeah I think that what matters the most is that we're able to constantly evolve constantly search for new answers, constantly ask good questions. And that's what you're doing. Absolutely. (laughs) And I'm really inspired by you. Oh, you're so sweet. I appreciate that. But you're very right because society changes. People change. Like we're not the same. Society right now is not the same. It was 20 years ago. And so policies in place, like just perspectives and opinions, those are going to continuously change. And so we as a people need to also evolve with that change. If not, we're going to leave out these minority communities that are, are, you know, smaller groups that may not have such a strong voice as the majority. And so it's always important to be keeping our eyes open to make sure that we are involving everybody and everybody has a fair opportunity to get ahead and to feel like themselves and heard. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you that when it came to like social structures, right? So what has been your perspective? You kind of already touched that right now with what you said about being more open-minded and understanding that we, we need to continuously evolve. But what other things have you noticed that needs to change in social structures in order for people, you know, young people uh, to be able to freely express their true identity and feel empowered knowing they have the ability to do so and the space to do so? 
Yeah, for starters, uh, you could get rid of the president who tweets bad stuff about young girls and women. But I think that the questions and the way you're putting it is uh, crucial because the fact that we're talking about structures and not just about individuals is really important because even in Norway, which is a very egalitarian, open feminist society, we still have institutionalized racism. And when I talk about negative social control, there's a lot of people who don't want to talk about racism. They don't want to talk about the backlash against feminism. They don't want to talk about the fact that there are people in Norway who face discrimination today. And I think that we cannot talk about one thing without talking about the other. And that's mm -hmm. really important. We should be able to talk both about racism and discrimination and how young people who are wearing a hijab will face much more hate because of what they're saying in the public than I do just because I am non-religious mm. or because I'm whitish Arab, <laughs> a pale Arab. It's not easy to see that I have another ethnic background. Mm -hmm. So that gives me, as I mentioned earlier, this passing privilege and it's so important to address. And mm -hmm. it's not a good thing to have a passing privilege. It's something that I have the responsibility of addressing every time I go out in public. Yeah. Uh, because or else I'm making the space smaller for other girls and women and that's a bad thing that's something that I should be aware of the other thing is that there are social structures connected to this uh, because when we talk about negative social control it's really easy to see it as one thing but if your father or your brother are constantly experiencing not feeling like they belong in a Norwegian society or in the American society, they won't be able to integrate and become part of it. And I think that it's important to differentiate between integration and assimilation because a lot of people talk about integration and what they really mean is that you should be just like us in order to fit in. Mm. But I think that if we give people the space to define their own identity, they'll be able to combine all these identities and make it to something that they feel comfortable with. However, when these boys and men, for example, or our parents are not feeling like they can fit in, like they belong, uh, they won't be safe enough to send their daughters out in the Norwegian society and tell them that, okay, it's okay if you become Norwegian. Mm. And that's what creates a big, much bigger dissonance or difference between different cultures and different identities. And our policymakers are responsible of making a change. They're responsible of making people feel like they belong because it would solve so many other issues. Also in terms of how parents are met at school, if you are a Somali mother who barely speaks Norwegian and you go to the teacher parents meetings and you don't understand anything, then it's not something that surprises me to know that this mother won't feel safe sending her daughter off to a camping trip with the school that she's not familiar with the culture of. So I think that having a dialogue and having policies that, for example, make sure that this mother gets a translator at this meeting, uh, mm. that this, this person gets more involved in society, that our mothers have real opportunities of getting jobs when they mm -hmm. come to Norway. It mm -hmm. matters so much. And I think that's where we should have policies. We can have policies that define people's lives or that tell them that you should change your way of living, you should change your culture. We should have policies that make them included in our societies, that make our parents, our communities feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to make the biggest difference.
Love and it. I think that's what made the biggest difference for my mother is that she started volunteering with the Red Cross. And then suddenly she was meeting all those people who were telling her, oh, your daughter is doing such a good job or what she's talking about is so important. And when you hear that, instead of hearing, oh, your daughter is uh, talking shit about our culture all the time. Oh, my God. It makes a difference. Oh, it yes. Makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And then it makes her life so much easier as well. Well, you think about it, just like youth, they have this struggle of trying to fit in growing up. Adults also want to feel included. Adults also want to feel like they're accepted. And if they have their own community that's outcasting them or talking bad about them, then they're going to feel they're going to feel bad. They're going to feel pain. And so she's now, you know, being able to, being able to see that acceptance is very key. And you were mentioning about policies, implementing policies, I'd say, you know, like at a local level, so important to show the consideration for the values and for the beliefs of other people and saying that, you know, we support those values and we know that it's different from this. And that's why we're implementing these policies to take that into consideration. And that is very important. You also mentioned another thing really quick about your passing privilege and how it's your yeah. responsibility to, to basically declare that, that you have a passing privilege. And how is it that you do that when you go up and you speak and you know that you're being heard more than another girl who might be saying the same thing, but wearing a hijab? So how do you, how do you make sure that you are keeping that space open for those minority groups? For, for starters, I don't think of them as those or them. I think we're all part of uh, this bigger society. And I know that you think so too, that we're all, we're all us. It's not mm-hmm. us and them. We're all a part of a bigger us and we depend on each other. But also my co-author Amina has a Somali background and she wears a headscarf. So the way we present it is by asking young people when we go to school, for example, who do you think receives the most hate? Do you think it's me or do you think it's Amina? And then we open this discussion about mm. how I have a passing privilege because I'm a cis woman, uh, because I'm straight, because I uh, speak in the dialect that I have. I speak in a Norwegian dialect that belongs mm. to this one area of the country. So if you heard me speaking in Norwegian, you would know where in Norway I'm from. Uh, and uh, it's a very distinct dialect, so it makes me even more Norwegian mm-hmm. that because people are often surprised by the fact that I speak in this dialect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so there's a lot of, there's a lot of small things. And also I don't want to go too much into this now, but I have to acknowledge the fact that I, I also don't have a disability. For example, I also have an okay economy. Like the class perspective is really important so by just talking about these perspectives and by addressing them and by saying this out loud, I hope that I'm making people think about it and realize that all of us, we all have a privilege in each our way. Like no one is solely disprivileged or privileged. And when I compare myself to Amina, I'm not saying that she doesn't have any privileges and I'm not saying that I don't experience racism. But what I'm saying is that there's a difference between how the world sees me and how the world sees her. And also a difference in how she faces the world when she go out, goes out there and mm-hmm. puts herself forward. Mm-hmm. And it's so important to talk about. It might be awkward. It might feel weird to be repeating that, oh, I'm such a pale Arab. But it's important. I it's think important. It's something that I have, to, uh, I have to acknowledge or else my feminism, my fight would be bullshit. Mm-hmm. Because if my feminism can't include all women, uh, regardless of who they are, where they come from, 
how they were born and mm-hmm. how their bodies were like when yes. uh, uh, when they were growing up then it's not real feminism it's mm-hmm. uh, it's bullshit i love that you have chosen to to stand up for so many and be such a powerful voice so that other individuals that also relate to what you've experienced can be heard. And I think it's also important to speak about when it comes to these voices being heard, what can they do? What can they do to ensure that their, their voices are being heard and that you know, they continue to press on with this effort for change, an effort for social change? I think that change starts at home. I think Mm. that uh, there are a lot of people who are not vocal about their struggles, who are not out in the media, who are not writing books, who are doing so much for themselves, for their sisters, for their brothers, uh, for their friends. Uh, And that is something that we have to acknowledge. It's not important that everything that we do uh, is in the media or that everyone hears everything all the time i think the the work that we do at home matters the work that we do on the ground uh, in our own lives matters mm-hmm. and i think that if i'm going to give some advice of how to be heard uh, now i'm saying this from my really privileged norwegian point of view as i mentioned earlier i was 18 when i was a columnist in my local newspaper and that that was such a big deal for me because i realized that i could write something that other people would read but my first advice would be to actually write or sing or talk or draw or paint or do whatever you need to do in order to express yourself. I don't think that everyone is going to be writing or speaking in public like I do, but everyone has a way of expressing themselves mm. and uh, they should do that within the space that they have. The second thing is to discuss the issues that they care about with people that they trust it could be people who disagree with you because that will only make you better but talk about these issues say them out loud uh, don't be afraid of changing your mind it's okay to change your mind Interesting. Uh, but talk about them and let yourself be challenged in the way that you think and i think that in this time and age we also have the internet <laughs> we have this great opportunity of being heard on one hand while at the other it's really easy to just drown in everything that is happening on social media or on the internet especially in these days when everyone's sitting at home and Mm -hmm. everyone is posting stuff yeah Uh, it's really easy to just drown in all the noise but finding a sense of community uh, is really important and just that community doesn't have to be where you live it could be online, it could be halfway across the globe. A final tiny rainy advice, and that's something that we often forget, we should organize, whether it's in a workers' union, in an NGO, with other people who want to make a change. It's so important to find someone else who's fighting the same fight as you are, mm. because I don't think anyone can make it on their own, even though I travel around the country making speeches and giving lectures about these issues Um, and it's something that I do alone it's still not a lonely mission it wouldn't have mattered if it wasn't for all the people who actually show up yes 
that's why I think it's so important to organize and that's why we never made Shameless into an organization or an NGO because there are so many NGOs out there who are working for these issues and we should join them. We should join forces. Interesting. So organizing is something that really matters to me because I see so many people who write that one op-ed or who have their five minutes, 15 minutes of fame, if you could call it that, or 15 minutes in the spotlight where their cause matters. But if you don't engage all those other people, then you're, you haven't done that much at the end of the day. Hmm. Wow. Thank you so much, Nancy. And honestly, I mean, the, it's very, I think it's very important for people to take their matters into their own hands and do that for their community and for those individuals in their community that need support. Because if individuals are doing this at a local level all around the world, that's when you really start to push this matter. Yeah, and I think it's important that people are doing things locally. And you were asking me earlier about the policies, and I just want to tell you this small story mm-hmm. um, about something that mattered more to me while growing up than policies. Because as I was saying, the policies on these issues shouldn't be concerned about how people live their life. We shouldn't micromanage, but we should build structures that make it easier for people to live their lives the way they want. And when I was growing up, my parents were insecure. My mother was insecure about letting me go to this camping trip with my friends or with my class. And she was insecure about letting me go to prom and she was insecure about all these issues in the Norwegian society and it's not because those things don't exist in the Lebanese society people also go to prom in Lebanon and Mm -hmm. people also go hiking in Lebanon but because she wasn't familiar with the Norwegian culture and what mattered the most at that time wasn't the policies but it was the fact that one of the parents in my class actually took the time to come visit my mother and father they took the time to Uh, talk to them about what this entailed. They took the time to have that cup of coffee, have that Mm -hmm. dialogue, tell them that, oh, we're going to take care of your daughter if she joins us uh, on this skiing trip. And because these parents took the time to have all these conversations, they opened up the space for me as I was growing up. And I ended up being allowed to do everything. And because I'm the oldest, I was sort of the guinea pig in my family. I was the, uh, the person that they tried everything on. So my siblings were allowed to do a lot more <laughs> because <laughs> they were younger. Uh, but because, because the parents of this one girl in my class made that effort, uh, they actually changed my life. And we could all be those parents. We could mm. all be that person who's just doing this tiny thing, just having that cup of coffee in order to change other people's lives. And mm-hmm. I actually met, um, I met this guy. Uh, he, it was both the father and mother of uh, this girl in my class that did this. And I met the father uh, last year while I was on tour um, in my hometown. And I decided that I had to tell him. And so I actually went up to him after our lecture and I told him, hey, uh, so basically I've been talking about you for two years and you don't know that because I've been telling this story in almost all the speeches and the events that I've been asked because it's so important. When people ask me, what can we do? It's this story that I share. And he told me that, oh, that's not something that we even thought about. It was just something that we would do for anyone. Mm. Uh, And I told him that 
it actually made such a big impact and it was so important. And what mm -hmm. fascinated me was when he told us, I was with my co-authors on tour, and he told us that you girls, you're proof that the Norwegian system works, you're proof that the welfare system works, you're proof that the way that our society is organized actually works. And even though there are a lot of things to criticize, I think there are still a lot of good things in Norway as well, because we have this social democratic society, we have this welfare state, uh, we have this sense of community where even a girl who came to Norway at six months old uh, with parents who immigrated from Lebanon can make it to this stage, can write a book in Norwegian, can travel around the country, uh, can get engaged in politics, and can make her voice be heard. And that's the best thing about being Norwegian is to me. Wow. Nancy, thank you so much for everything today. And your message to the world and to others is so powerful, and it's so beautiful and hopeful. It's full of hope. And I love that because it really puts the power and the difference into the hands of every individual. And so I wanna thank you truly for being here today and for sharing your story. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you, when it comes to reaching out, when it comes to staying up to date, what is it that my audience can do uh, in order to stay up to date or, or reach out if they want it? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. <laughs> I just have to check what my name is. <laughs> because I always forget that. It used to be Nancy Nader, and then people tried to find me and they couldn't, so I had to change it, <laughs> even though that was my superhero name. Um, yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter. It's Nancy Hurst. And okay, uh, I would love uh, if people would get in touch. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would just like to finish by saying that even though this issue that we've been talking about today is something that's really close to my heart, something that I'm really concerned about and that I think it's really important to talk about. It really puts things into perspective when you're faced with a situation such as uh, COVID-19, yeah. uh, where a lot of people are losing their income, they're losing uh, their livelihood, they're losing their lives because of the situation. And it makes me think about all the people who are, who are not privileged to begin with the people who are in the refugee camps, the people who are uh, facing real hardship, the people who uh, are in low-income families, who are facing so many bad things uh, already and who will be hit the hardest by exactly. the situation as well. So even though I think it's really important to talk about living your life the way you want to, uh, I remember uh, a few weeks ago, I was at the Women's Day uh, event uh, in Norway. It was the last thing that I was able to attend before Norway basically locked down. I remember being there talking about this issue and saying that it feels really weird to be standing here talking about oh, how I'm going to live a free life when I know that refugee women are standing on the borders of Europe and we're locking them out and their women as well. And that's something that we have to remember uh, in these times and in these issues. And the fact that I'm discussing this does not mean that there are more pressing things to discuss. It doesn't mean that there are not uh, issues that need greater attention. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, sh we should be able to talk about all these issues at the same time and not well. have just one thought in our heads. No, absolutely. And I think 
and you know i'm on that side as well because the thing is that these individuals be part of of them being able to live that life and have the security and the health and the support that they need a lot of times involves addressing the uh, structural inequalities around them because it prevents them from being able to achieve that so definitely an important message to put out there and i'm very happy that you finished off with that statement because it's very important for people to know that during this time, especially these, these crises that hits the world, there are so many individ- so many people, communities of people that are being hit the hardest. Yeah. So we should check our privilege before we start hoarding toilet paper. Oh, absolutely. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Please, toilet paper. It, I mean, seriously. I mean, I don't understand it, but thank you so much, Nancy, for, for everything you. today and for being here, for taking this time all the way from Norway. I truly appreciate it. And until next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and feel inspired and would like to be a part of the Relentless Minds community, you can join the movement for change on Instagram and Twitter. We would also love to know how your experience has been as a listener. If you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe rate and review this podcast. Join us next week for another powerful story. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.